In the summer of 1944, it was the buzz bomb summer, and uh, where I lived in London was one of the uh, areas over which uh, there were quite a number. Uh, and we didn't have a summer holiday, but my friend in the Scouts, Gordon Woolley, he was uh, nearly a year older than I was, uh, said, well, our former Scoutmaster was in the army and he was stationed in Weymouth. Uh, what about hitchhiking down to Weymouth to see him? And uh, then we can go on after that to st uh, and stay with Gordon's aunt who lived in Plymouth. And this was suggested to my parents who, to my amazement, agreed. I suppose that in that summer life in London was about as risky as uh, you could uh, get any at any other time and um, uh, the risks of the of hitchhiking for two uh, boys uh, were perhaps um, not as great as they were staying in London. Anyway, we duly set off and managed to get down to Dorchester uh, by the late afternoon, which is amazing really, um, but we did a whole number of different lifts and we stood by the uh, cemetery on the Weymouth uh, Avenue and waited for something to come along and of course uh, nothing did until a convoy of American army lorries came through oh, we thought they're not going to pick us up but anyway we duly lifted our thumbs and hitched and the last truck in the line stopped and we rushed round to the back and the soldiers who were standing in these open trucks reached over, grasped us by their, our rucksacks and hauled us up into the truck. And we were terrified because those soldiers were American black soldiers and we had never, either of us, seen a black man in the flesh before. We'd seen them in films occasionally, but we'd never seen one. Okay, not even in, not in, in not London. Not in London. They were, just didn't, they weren't there. They, or they were so few that you didn't meet them. Uh, but they were um, very kind. They gave us chewing gum, which was the standard thing for them to give to uh, British children. And we stood with the American soldiers and the lorry immediately streaked after the rest of the convoy to try and catch them up. Up Moncton Hill, got to the top and went round the hairpin on two wheels. And we were all clinging on for dear life down into Upway. And that's where they said, well, you better get off here because we're not supposed to be carrying hitchhikers and we've got to go on to our base in, in Weymouth. So we got off there and we uh, got off the main road and found uh, a farmyard with a barn and we slept in that barn that night on a concrete floor I remember uh, with a horse and uh, the following morning we got up and because we were boy scouts we made a fire and cooked our breakfast. Uh, 
We had no idea of the time, neither of us possessed a watch, and of course there were no phones uh, of any kind, so we had no communication. But having made our breakfast, we thought we'd better walk into Weymouth, and so we did. And as we arrived in, uh, on the front, the clock was there, and it was indeed half past three in the afternoon. We'd managed to sleep rather longer than, than <laughs> we thought. Um, so that's none of that sense of read, reading the, the sun and the, and the um, world. No, no we weren't very clever in that way. Those scout tri- tips. It that they was uh, yeah, it's rather <laughs> primitive. Anyway, um, uh, Weymouth was, uh, of course, a base from which the invasion uh, of uh, Normandy had taken place, and the American army landing craft had been brought back from Normandy. This was uh, the late July. Uh, the invasion had taken place in June. And all these landing craft were all lined up on Weymouth Beach, uh, very much cordoned off with barbed wire and you couldn't get near the beach. The only part of the beach that was open was that part near the uh, pier bandstand. Um, at this end, near the Queen Victoria's statue. And you could go onto a little piece of beach there. So we, we duly uh, went on the beach. And indeed, we did this every day for the next week. Um, incredibly, going back to our hard floor in the barn every night. Why went to the Scoutmaster? Uh, well, we actually called on him. He wasn't, uh, shall we say, overjoyed to see us. Oh, so you hadn't re- prearranged or phoned us oh, no, no connection. <laughs> but he, he was, uh, uh, we, we met him anyway, and that was that. Uh, his office was right on the front, as it happened. Okay. Um, and um, anyway, the, uh, the week went by, and in the course of the week, we met a family, uh, a young woman and two children who were on the beach at this time and the, uh, the young woman suggested we should go to the tea dance on the um, bandstand. In those days the pier went further out than it does now and there, there was this uh, band playing and we, we were supposed to dance. So how we ever managed, we were only 14 year olds dancing but we did. And uh, so we remained friendly with this uh, young woman for a, a couple of days. And we used to get our lunches at the British restaurant. The British restaurants were uh, publicly organised, cheap restaurants which were created during the war so that you would get a, a good meal for a very small sum of money. And we, we duly lunched at the British restaurant in King Street in Weymouth. And then at the end of the week, we decided we must go on and we hitchhiked down to Plymouth. And when we got to Plymouth, we found um, my friend's aunt and she lived in a very nice flat um, just below the hoe uh, with a balcony overlooking the sound. It was a very pleasant place indeed. And so we stayed with her and her husband for the next uh, few days. And each night we would sit on the balcony and watch the Sunderland flying boats coming in over the Sound, having been out uh, over the western approaches where they were hunting submarines. 
U-boats. Uh, they would come in at night and we, you couldn't see them because, of course, there was complete blackout. All you could do was to hear the engines and suddenly you would see the sheen on the water as the flying boat landed uh, at Mount Batten, which was just across uh, from where the, uh, the flat was on the hill. And it was a splendid place. And we actually went over to the other side um, of the sound and went up on the cliffs and immediately underneath the cliffs was moored HMS Warspite which was a battleship and we found that we were looking down from the cliffs almost down her funnel because she was so, moored so close in. It was quite astonishing um, and uh, then we came back uh, again to uh, the, the flat. And then at the end of that week uh, we thought it was about time we went home. Remember that we had absolutely no communication with our families. Oh right. They, so even this time in Plymouth you'd not... No. Yeah, because your, no, your parents wouldn't have had a phone in the My house. parents didn't have a phone. Uh, as far as I know Gordon's parents didn't have a phone. Um, and we certainly had no communication. We, I think we might have sent postcards um, but that was about it. And then uh, we hitchhiked back, and I remember distinctly going through Salisbury. And the other side of Salisbury, at the top of the hill, uh, for some reason we were deposited there. Uh, there was usually military vehicles which would pick us up, because we were in scout uniform, and the thing was that uh, you, uh, you, you gave lifts to servicemen, and we were in a sort of uniform. And um, every time I pass that spot near the top of the hill, I remember mm. standing there in 1944 trying to hitch a lift. It uh, goes back a long time. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but then we talked about, you know, if your, if your children had said at 14, oh, look, um, Dad, I'm going to go hitchhike up to London for two weeks... I don't think we would have been very keen, to say the least. They never entered our heads no. that they would, and of course they, 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 they never, didn't. No, they, didn't. they never asked. Um, uh, but that's it, because it's like, say, like at those times, 14, you were an adult, because it was an age when mm. you left school and, and entered the workforce. You took on responsibility. And nowadays, it's you're just about starting your exams, really. Yes, yes, indeed. It's a change, yes. change the, of times. Uh, it's a very different uh, pattern of life. Mm. Uh, but it gave me something to uh, talk about for the rest of my life, which is why I'm talking about it Ooh, to you well, now. Fantastic, like I say, fantastic. Um, sounds like a fantastic holiday. Well, it was. So, um, and you hitching to Weymouth, was that your connection that brought you down here then in the end? No, 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 no. No, I was teaching at um, East Barnet Grammar School in London, thinking that it was time to uh, look and see if there are any other things uh, to do. I wondered whether I would try and be uh, a deputy head and possibly go on to be a head of a school. Um, but it became apparent that because I'd only had one school, I'd had no teacher training, I was not the most obvious candidate for uh, mm. being a deputy head or a head. I'm surprised to think about it now, but it never really came into my mind that I should uh, get extra qualifications at that stage or even move sideways into another school. Uh, but I didn't. I seemed always to be extremely busy with uh, my own family. 
Um, and uh, it never really attracted me as an idea. And so um, I looked around and there were jobs being advertised in teacher training colleges. Um, and the Weymouth College of Education, which is where what is now called Weymouth College uh, is, uh, the, the Weymouth College of Education was a teacher training establishment, residential, for uh, about 200 girls. And they wanted a historian. And I, rather to my surprise, was shortlisted, went down for the interview, and the then principal, Maureen Winstock, was herself a historian and very interested in local history. And as it happened, I had been doing a little bit of very primitive research in the records of Barnet, and in particular the manorial records. I hadn't got very far with it, and certainly it um, was not what I would have called research in later days. But I uh, talked about this, and she clearly uh, thought this was what she wanted. And so uh, I was appointed as a lecturer at, East, uh, at uh, Weymouth College of Education. So the fact that you hitchhiked, it's just a strange coincidence that you ended up moving down to this area. I had no, no, no connection, mm. and uh, we came down to have a look at houses, um, and we couldn't find anything we liked in Weymouth at the time. Uh, came up to Dorchester, and they said they hadn't got very much on either, uh, but we could always look at uh, this place in Martinstown, which was being built, mm. and we came out here, and okay. here well, we are. Is, okay, well, that's good. Four, 47 years later. <laughs> so this is probably, in, what was this? Probably a new building at the time then, really? It was. Yeah. When we first saw it, it was a shell. Okay. Um, they hadn't uh, finished it. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, okay, so just coming back, I just want to touch on the, the, the thing of... So one thing that's striking me in the conversation is, because quite a lot of people, their leisure time, there seems to be a definite gap from a break, from being a child to becoming an adult. Or at least they seem to... What they do as a child, they seem to stop in a way, and, that, and they do different activities as an adult, while yours seems to have continued... In the, in the things of drama, you seem to have continued that into later, yes. later life. Yeah, um, certain things that I was doing uh, as a late teenager, I suppose I carried on. And, re and reading. Um, yes, oh yes. You know, and your, 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 love, your love and interest in history. So it's quite interesting that from what I'm saying for you is, is you seem to have had that from an early age and it's just, and that, that whole leisure pursuit has continued, yes, really. For me, there was... Um, in a distinction between um, young person and, and adult, I, uh, it was while I was in the Marines, I think, um, and in the Marines I became a corporal, was in charge of a barrack room, um, and had taken on a certain amount of minor authority. Um, and yet my father had treated me very much as a child before I went in. And I'd always assumed this was what I was, really, uh, even at the age of 17 or 18. And uh, when I came back, he was treating me in the same way. And here was 
uh, somebody who had been in charge of older men who had uh, uh, had some minor authority and I was being treated like uh, a boy and it was the subject of some <laughs> disagreement mm. but we never came to blows. No, no. I don't know if you want to come and touch on this, is it later on when you retired, so you took on up things like um, model railways? Well, I, I've been retired for 33 years. The railway, the model railway, only came um, after about, uh, well, let's see, I retired in 79 and I started the railway in 90, so um, I suppose that's a, a good way to retire. 11 years. Mm. Um, and the railway lasted about 10 years. And really, writing writing books has succeeded the railway. That's oh, okay. So you've only been writing since, since in the last 10 years? Um, the first book that I did um, was in 1990. That was uh, The Dorset Horn, um, all about the sheep. And it was done at the request of the Dorset Horn Sheep Breeders Association, uh, who wanted to celebrate their 100 years. And so I produced this book, and uh, to my amazement, you can still find it on eBay. <laughs> um, but it was a substantial term. And then um, I began working on the History of the Dorset Magistracy, which was a book called Dorset Justice, and that was published in 99. And then since then, a whole series of local history 